Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Thanks for braving the weather. Kind of a blustery day out there, but we're warm here inside. Praise the Lord. Thank you. We can be thankful even for his provision of this facility that we can gather in. Very successful youth event yesterday. Well, it was for all ages, but a lot of young a lot of young people there at the ice fishing event hosted by Josh and Steph Mackey, so special thanks to them. A lot of effort goes into putting on those events, but a lot of smiles on those faces as they pull in those fish. Many of those kids are like my own, where unless somebody puts on an event like that, they're never going ice fishing. So that was, that was nice to see some of the kids there when a young gal from our church pulled in one of the one of a fish, a fish that at the time was tied for first place in the crappies. Uh, sh- she was so excited about it. I said, do you, do you know what first prize is, though? And she said, no. I said, it's a book of math problems. And she said, really? <laughs> I don't want that. I don't want that. In any event, they were able to hear Josh give a nice, succinct message of salvation the wind was just absolutely howling. It's funny to, to see how God undertakes whatever the circumstances are. The standing there, all of our backs to the, the wind and the blowing snow, and Josh is introducing some of the folks there may not have ever heard this message, but the message of who Jesus is and what he's done and how it's faith in the right object that can save us. And so a lot of other conversations that were able to take place around food or in nice houses, but uh, that was a fun opportunity and a great uh, outreach yesterday. I think that's, that's all I have for announcements. Anyone else have an announcement that I'm missing? All right, well, let's get started with a word of prayer then. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to gather here together with believers of like precious faith. Pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not saved, has not put their faith in your finished work on their behalf on Calvary, that today would be the day of salvation as they'd recognize that there's nothing complicated about it. They had a problem. They were a sinner who was estranged from you, but you and your love made a a way of rescue by sending your son to become sin for them and to die in their place, taking the debt they owed and paying it through his own life or with his own life. Pray that they'd see that by simply accepting that gift that's offered, putting their trust and confidence in what Christ had done for them, they could be saved and that second born into your forever family where you say that you'd never let them go and they can look forward to an eternity spent with you in heaven. Thank you that if we even sing the song Sheltered in the Arms of God, there's no fear as the Christian looks forward to eternity for to be absent with from this body is to be present with the Lord and we have that assurance that although there's uncertainty and difficulty and the trials can be very hard, but at the end of it, We know that we have forever to look forward to in a place that's absolutely perfect and spotless and free from all the blemishes and brokenness that we have to experience here in this sin-cursed world and these sin-cursed bodies. Thank you that we can say, as Paul said in his prayer this morning, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May he come quick. We are eagerly looking forward to your return. Pray that we would have that mindset each and every day. Thank you for this time again in your word. Give me wisdom as I speak so it would be accurate and clear and useful to those who are here today. Give those that are listening ears that are interested in hearing your truth communicated in a way that could change their lives, to change their thinking. It could draw them closer to you. Thank you for all that you've done. Pray that you'd get all of the honor and glory in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Thankful for God's Grace. Thankful for God's Grace. And as we've discussed previously in this series, prayers can take various forms, and we've already seen one of them, one of these prayers of thanksgiving before. Some of those categories were prayers of petition or supplication, prayers of intercession, prayers of confession. We covered a prayer of thanksgiving with our first lesson on the prayers of Paul, and then prayers of praise, which we looked at last week, an example of that in Romans chapter 16. And so as you look at those different forms of prayer, prayer isn't complicated. It's the way to communicate to God and to tell Him things, to talk to God. We talk to God through prayer. You can speak out loud. You can just simply think and incline those thoughts to Him and as a way of communicating to Him and involving Him in your life. And so when you think of a prayer of thanksgiving, it simply involves telling God you're thankful for something. And as believers, we'll see today that you have plenty of things to choose from when you think about the things that you're thankful for or you should be thankful for. But as you think of that laundry list of things you could be thankful for, perhaps you think of the song, count your blessings, name them one by one. And as you count those blessings, sometimes you run out of paper, you run out of space because God has blessed you so tremendously. And there's so many different things that He has done for us, both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. But as you think of what would be at the top of that list, well, you could argue about what that would be, but certainly near the top would be God's grace. There's nothing more obvious that you could think of to be thankful for, to tell God, I am so thankful for, than His grace bestowed upon you so so wondrously and so completely. God never holds back with His grace. You think about the completeness of God's grace, it touches every aspect of our lives, our spiritual lives, our emotional lives, our relational lives, our financial lives. God's grace can be, is on display in His provision for the complete care of His children. And you see that in so many different passages in the Bible, but you should be bursting with gratitude as you think about being thankful to God. But when you think about His grace, what He has done for you in the past, what He continues to do for you in the present, what He's promised to do for you in the future, that should give you that heart of gratitude that Summer and Leah sang about this morning. You know, it starts off, all my words fall short. That's a great lyric. Like, how could you express, how can I express all my gratitude? Well, you can start by saying thankful, thank you to the Lord for anything and then build off of that. There's so many times where you could just simply recognize what God has done for you and is doing for you in your life and just say thank, thank you, having that mental thought, Lord, thank you. Just thank you, Lord. And if your heart is overflowing with gratitude, it's not going, you're not going to be going through life focused on all the things you don't have or all the things that in your perception are not going the way you want them to go. When your heart is filled with gratitude, it pushes out a lot of the rest of that baggage that ends up dragging you down, ends up being a negative influence on you. So you should be eager to say thank you to Him. And the Bible records many examples of men and women of faith saying just that to the Lord as they communicate with Him through prayer. But as we're doing a series here on the prayers of Paul, there are several 
examples of Paul communicating his gratitude to God as well, sometimes in the form of just a statement, sometimes in the form of a prayer. So the prayer we're going to look at today is another example of Paul expressing gratitude to God or saying thank you to God as he did in Romans chapter 1 when we looked at that prayer there. So turn, if you will, to Romans, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1. That's where we're going to pick up today. Here's another example of a prayer of Paul, a prayer where he's specifically, though, saying thank you for God's grace. So 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9 is, Lord willing, the passage that we're going to look at here this morning. 1 Corinthians 1. Before we dive deeper into each of these verses, let's just read this section here together. Pick up in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for what? For the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's quite a lot here, but we'll dig into it, and Lord willing, we'll get through it here this morning. But starting with verse 4 here, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. This is the primary thought of this section. This is the main point that Paul is making. Certainly, this is the main point that I want to draw out here this morning. I thank my God for the grace which was given to you, is the way you could simplify that. But I thank my God always concerning you. Paul begins several of his letters by describing his gratitude for fellow believers and their spiritual well-being. We observed this previously to start this series in Romans 1, 8, where he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And that message was titled, I thank God for you. That your faith is spoken of throughout the world. He then gets into some of the details, much as he is going to again here. But here he doesn't say, I thank my God directly for you all. He says, I thank my God always concerning you, meaning I'm thankful for what God has done for you, is what we're going to get into here, as his focus here is on the grace of God which was given to them, as a byproduct of their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to see some other examples where Paul starts out a letter by saying, I thank my God for having this attitude of gratitude for his fellow believers, you could look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, and also we're going to see another example in Philippians later on in our series. But I want to draw out a couple of things here. One is that he says, I thank my God always. And that's very common when Paul talks about his prayers of praise or his prayers of thanksgiving is that he's saying, do this always or I'm doing this always. And it indicates or emphasizes the frequency of Paul's prayers of thanksgiving, especially as it relates to others, the one and others that God has put in his life. Now, he's not literally always giving thanks for these believers or for the one and others that God has put in his life. It's a, it's a phrase of speech. But it's talking about, I do this a lot. I'm often, or I'm continue, I continue to do this. This is a 
habitual part of my life that I'm giving thanks to God for the one another's that He's put in my life. But in most instances, when you look at Paul doing this, he's saying, I'm thankful for you, for the benefit or the blessing that you are to me, for the benefit I've been able to be to you. I, I don't have pride about that. I'm just thankful to God that He's used me in your life. And then sometimes he's also, and commonly, he's saying, I'm thankful for the spiritual, your spiritual well-being. I'm thankful for you in the sense that you're thriving right now in your faith. That, that makes me grateful. That makes me have a spirit of thanksgiving that I want to direct to God because I'm, that was my objective. My objective in ministering to you or pouring out the essence or the substance of my life into you was that you would thrive and that you would grow, you would mature, you would be strengthened, you would be edified, you'd be built up in your faith. That was my objective, as God gave me a mission to proclaim Him. Proclaim Him to those that were lost and then to be used to proclaim Him to those who had gotten saved in a way that they could grow, that they could mature, that they could be built up in their faith. And so if that's the mission if that's what you're living for, if you're living to lift Him up, naturally then you'd have a sense of gratitude when you see God working in people's lives so that that outcome was occurring, that they were growing in their faith. And you think about gratitude or thanksgiving. How are you going to be grateful for something like that if that's not your mission, if you don't see that as your focus? If you're not living to lift Him up, and, and you don't see that lifting Him up is primarily done through investing in people as God's Spirit moves and works in you and empowers you to be used of Him to encourage others, to point people back to Him, whether they're lost or they're saved. What is the best thing that we can do for people? To redirect them, point them back to Jesus Christ through our own strength? No. Through pride? No. Through humility, as I see that I'm a vessel or an instrument that when I remain connected to or abiding in Jesus Christ and His Spirit is free to work in my life, He wants to use me. He wants to use me to bring Himself glory. So if the chief end of man is to glorify God, how is that done? Well, certainly it can be done by singing God's praises. Let my life song sing to you, is what a current artist says, the song of my life, is it singing to you? Is it lifting up Jesus Christ? But how is that done by just singing in a vacuum? Singing in isolation? Well, certainly God can be glorified by that. But as you read His revealed Word, you see that God gave mankind a mission to be light bearers, to shine His light into the lives of others. This isn't about you. You died your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You have a mission, a mission to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So he says, I do this always. This is a constant part of my mentality is to have a sense of thankfulness and gratitude for what God's doing both in my life, but what I can see him doing in your life too. Now you have this other, this other little clause, my God. I thank my God. And I don't want to dwell on this too much. You could do, we could do a whole message about this. But I think it's worth noting the language that Paul uses. I thank my God. It indicates that Paul understands the personal, relational, and intimate nature of the walk of faith. It doesn't do you any good to imagine God in a 
distant kind of a way, in an abstract kind of way, but you don't see Him as your personal Savior, your personal God, my Heavenly Father, my Savior, Jesus Christ. If you don't see it that way, you don't see the intimate relationship that God wants you to have for Him. You don't see that you were made for a relationship with God. You're going to miss out on what you, you may miss out on the gospel message altogether if you don't see that this was about Christ and His having died and paid for your sins. You, you miss out there, but then you'll miss out in the sense of living the abundant life that God has planned for you because it can only be experienced through intimacy with Him. If you're not experiencing that fellowship and that closeness and that intimacy where you're including Him in your life and you're saying, you're my God, I want to walk with you and talk with you. I want to involve you in my life. I don't want to push you out. I don't want to exclude you from the things that I'm doing. I want to take you with you, with me to the places that I'm going. I want to allow you to be a part of it. I want to depend on you as we're going through these rocky roads and we're going through even these roads that seem smooth. I want to be trusting you in that. I don't want to be leaving you out or doing it in my own strength. I want to be depending and resting completely in your arms. And so as you think about that perspective, you would be saying, my God, this would be a very personal God. And Paul uses this phrase where he describes God as my God seven times in his letters. Hence, we, if we went through them all, that would take up our message. But I want to show you just one example here, probably the most familiar most of you probably know this verse, one that I was taught as a child here even at this church, but Philippians 4.19 says, and my God, my God, not, not someone else's God, my God shall supply all of your need. So it's interesting here because he's thinking about God in a very personal and intimate relational way, but he's focused on how his God is going to undertake to deal with their needs, another believer's, other people's needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The focus is always on God and what He can do, never on us and what we can do. So seven times He uses that phrase, and as I mentioned earlier, apart from personal faith in Christ, there is no salvation. Believing, Mrs. Erb used to say this, she taught this as a thought for the day when I was, when I was young, I remember it. But she used to say that believing Christ died, that's history. But believing Christ died for me, that's salvation. And you see, believing that Christ paid for the sins of the world in a generic sense, that's just a data point. That's just a factoid from history. But when you come to the place where you accept as a free gift the offer that He's made to you, that He says, I died for your sins, I paid your debt, will you put your trust in what I've done for you? The moment that you believe that, your debt's been paid by His sacrifice on your behalf. That moment, the Bible says you're born again. You're born into God's family, and now you're part of His forever family, and He'll never let you go. Wonderful, wonderful grace of God, as we sang about earlier here. So, that really isn't the focus here, but I thank my God, a couple of things that we can pull out there concerning you, meaning concerning God's provision for you, we'll see that here with this next phrase that says, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And this is the thrust of our message here this morning. I thank my God for the grace of God 
which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Paul now communicates the specific basis for his gratitude for the grace of God which was given to you. And you see, grace refers to unmerited favor, something you do not deserve. God giving you something that you do not deserve. And when you think about the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, there's two ways of looking at this. In a general sense, God's grace is demonstrated through the sacrifice of Christ, and that was true for these individuals in the sense that but for the grace of God in sending His Son Jesus to die in the place of sinners, they wouldn't have any access to God or have any relationship with God. They'd remain estranged from God. But God in His grace looked down in His love at those who did not deserve it, and He said, I'm going to make a way for you to be reconciled to me. I'm going to redeem you from the bondage that you were in to sin and the penalty that was owed for being a sinner. And I'm going to rescue you and save you if you'll just accept the rescue that's being held out to you or offered to you. If you would just grab a hold of the life buoy that I'm extending to you, there's a way for you to be rescued. And a verse that comes to mind as I was thinking about just the general, the grace of God that was given to you, of course, beginning with justification and God's rescue for mankind. This is what came to mind, Romans 3, 23, but specifically Romans 3, 24. And interestingly, the song, the variation of Amazing Grace we sang this morning, the, the verse that was a lot of the songs in our blue hymnal, or maybe a red one too, but a blue hymnal, the songs generally, I think all of them have a verse that is attached to the song, mean, meaning that's not divine. Some human being went through the the hymnal, looked at the content of the psalm of the song, and then kind of put a verse at the top that they thought kind of went with that. And the verse they selected for that variation of Amazing Grace was Romans three twenty four. And you know, Brent does normally maybe glance at my notes or ask me what I'm going to be speaking about. He does try to tie in some of our songs to the content of our messages. I I don't know if he looked at it that well, but what a what a great little connection there. But Romans 3.23, very familiar. Romans 3.24, a little less familiar. But for all have sinned, this is speaking of man's need, everyone without exception has sinned, and the result of sin is that sin separates. Because God is perfectly holy, God can't be in, a, in union with or he can't be in close proximity with sin. And so sin separates. That's why Romans 6.23a says that the wages of sin is death, but all have sinned. And by sinning, they've fallen short of God's glory, meaning they don't measure up. They don't stack up to God's standard of perfect righteousness. And so to be with God, if God is holy, and if God can't be around sin, something had to be done about the sin. So then the verse goes on to say in verse 24, not, not that verse, but the next verse saying, being justified or declared to be in a right standing, declared to be righteous, even though we were just said to all have been sinners. So how can all have been sinners, but then in the next breath have been declared to be righteous? Well, we're justified or declared to be righteous freely by His grace. Now, what's the mechanism for that? The mechanism for that was through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ came to redeem us, as He died on a cross for sins He had not committed, He died on a cross for your sins and my sins. So as he hung on Calvary saying, I love you this much, all of the sins of the world, past, present, and future, were laid on him. 
He then became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become something we're not or be declared to be something we're not, which is the righteousness of God in Him. We call that imputation. The righteousness of Jesus Christ was credited to our account the moment we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as He had already paid for our sins. So He became our sins. He took our robes of sin and they were placed on Jesus Christ, the Father did that. Jesus died for those sins. And as we accept His sacrifice on our behalf, His blood that was shed for us, then His righteousness, that moment of faith, is then credited to our account or we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who He is and what He's done. So that moment of faith, that's how you get in on this. You accept, you put your trust in, you put your confidence in what Christ has done that very moment. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And now you're said to no longer be identified with Adam and the race of sinners, but you're now identified with Christ. You're now said to be in Christ. And being in Christ and now identified with Christ's righteousness, now we can have peace with God. We can have a relationship with God. And he says, on the basis of the work of my son, now you are in a right standing with me positionally, and I'll never let you go. Now, does that mean practically you always remain in a right standing with God? The answer is no, not in the sense of a, a relationship. The relationship, the parental side of it, where God is your father, you're now born into his family. That's a moment in time that you're born into the family of God. But when you talk about being on good terms with God or being in fellowship with God or being in present union with God, there's times where when you're distancing yourself from him, turning your back on him, choosing sin instead of choosing the Savior, trusting in your own strength, walking by sight instead of walking by faith, you're not going to be in a close parental kind of a relationship with God because the relationship is going to have been strained by sin. Remember, sin separates. Now, it doesn't separate you from the family of God, but it separates you from intimate fellowship with God in those moments where you're acting in rejection and rebellion against God. So how do we restore that temporal, present relationship in a practical way with God? We restore that relationship by saying the same thing as God. If we confess our sins, acknowledge our sins, agree with God is what that word means, say the same thing as God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're talking about the kind of cleansing where your feet have picked up defilement just like Jesus is talking about in the upper room where he's washing his disciples' feet. And he's saying periodically you need to have your feet washed because they pick up the defilement of the world that you're walking through. He doesn't say you're not my child or that you need to continuously be saved, again, in a positional sense, but he's saying in a relational sense, for the relationship to be restored, you had to wash that dirt off of your feet. And I'm going to show you that and do that for you. You see, because Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And he says, if you don't, I don't wash your feet, you're not going to have anything, you're not going to have this relationship with me. He says, then wash my whole body. And he says, one who's already been washed once, their whole body's been washed once, they don't need to have their whole body washed again. They just need to have their feet cleansed of defilement. Nothing whatsoever to do with what we're talking about here. But there is a description anyway of that process of being redeemed or justified and then how that's a moment in time where we enter into God's family as a result of His grace.
thereafter. We obviously continue to need his grace, and we'll get to that in a second. I want you to highlight, though, this word given. The grace of God was given to you by Christ Jesus. That indicates that this is a gift. This isn't something that you can work for. You see, grace excludes works. It excludes works. Either something that God has given to you is a reward for doing good, or it's a gracious gift that's freely offered to sinners. But it's not both. It cannot be both. And so as you think about the grace of God in terms of positional, the positional grace of God or in the, in the sense of justification, it's either a free gift or it's works, but it's not both. And here's another verse in Romans. I know I've been talking to a few of you about different verses in Romans that you could learn that tell the story of Jesus and his love. Well, the problem is with it, you can keep adding to it. You know, you can start with five, you can work to six, to eight, to ten, to fifteen. There's so many of them as you go through that will pull out this idea. But here we have in Romans eleven six that says, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Meaning it can't be both. It's either grace or it's works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. If something's going to be work, then this is something that is a payment that is made for services rendered. If something's going to be grace, then it has to be a gift that is freely given and a gift that is freely received. So young people, some of you teenagers that are here, as you're building up your toolbox of verses that are like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, here's another one to add to that list. You could add Romans 4, 5 to that list. You can add Titus 3, 5 to that list. So as you think about I'm talking with people, I want to communicate to them that for grace to be grace, it has to be free. Now, it wasn't free to the one giving it, but it has to be free to the one receiving it. Meaning, it cost Jesus everything to die in your place. He had to actually die. His blood had to actually be shed. But as you think about sort of expanding the scope of the toolbox that you have to work with in an evangelistic setting, oftentimes this, this is a point that has to be communicated because it's faith alone is one response, but it's not of works is the other aspect to it. So the plus side of it is you have to accept that this is, this is something that Christ alone has done for me. I have to accept this by faith, but to do that means I have to, on the other side of it, acknowledge that there's nothing I could do. If Christ did it all, then there's nothing I could do. So when you get to the response to the gospel, you've talked about man's need and God's solution to man's need, but now you're to this third part, man's response to this message. It's faith alone in Christ's work, but it's also, it's not of you. But in that category of what verses would you bring them to? You know, we talked about effective evangelism at VBS this last summer, right, Summer? Mark? Okay, some of you were there. We worked on effective evangelism. And part of that is having tools that we can resort to to show people where the Bible shows this principle or demonstrates this principle. In any event, Romans eleven six. add that to your list. Now, that's not what Paul is getting at here specifically. He's not primarily referring to God's grace in terms of how it was demonstrated through the sacrifice of Christ. When he's talking about for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, obviously that's a part of it. Justification is a part of it. There is no Christian living apart from justification. But what he's really getting at, we'll see later, is he's getting at God's grace being expressed continually through his provision for the ongoing spiritual needs of his children. 
So for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus, we're going to see the grace of God that it's expressed continually through his ongoing provision for the spiritual needs of his children. And that's the primary emphasis here. So as a believer, you are a beneficiary of God's ongoing provision and work in your daily life. And there's several passages that we can look at, but Philippians 2.13 is one example of God, His ongoing work in your life, and how when you think about, I'm thankful, I thank my God for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus and continues to be given to you by Christ Jesus. And we have Philippians 2.13, it's, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is working in His children. When you think about God's work, yes, He's working in the world around me but he's working in me. He lives inside of me. That's why there's a song called Waymaker that I've referred to, and I'll continue to refer to it because the bridge of it is so encouraging. Even when I can't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. So many people, they ascribe feelings as the only source of validation that God is working. God does give you feelings. They are from God. He designed you that way, but we're not driven and we don't operate exclusively on the basis of our feelings. God has promised that because He lives inside of you that He's working to complete the work that He started in you. And He says He's going to keep on working until the day He takes you home. He's going to one day complete that work by glorifying you, getting rid of your sin nature altogether, putting you in a place that is free finally, from sin, where you'll get to experience salvation in that sense. But along the way, he's going to finish what he started. He's going to keep working in you. Get some page turning here. Shake, uh, shake things up a little bit. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Another fascinating part about how God continues graciously to provide for and work in his children. Hebrews 13, verse 20. And 21. If you don't have a Bible, here it is up on the screen. Now may the God, and, and by the way, this is also a prayer. So this doesn't happen to be a prayer of Paul, but this is, a, this is another prayer that we see recorded in God's Word. So fitting in a series about Paul's prayers that we look at that here today. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will. Who's making you complete? God is making you complete. Now what is he doing to make you complete? Working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, isn't that a wonderful prayer? That could have obviously been a message too. But working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. You see, if you're trusting in your own strength to produce Christ's way of living, you're going to fail. The only way Christ's way of living is going to be produced in your life is if it's Christ's Spirit doing it. When you think about the work of the Holy Spirit, it's called many things, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. When you think about God living inside of you, the working inside of you, 
it's working to provide a manner of living or a way of living or victory that's impossible through your own strength. I can't do this without you. But when I see that you can do this in and through me, when I let you, when I allow you, when I make a positive volitional response that says, I'm not going to continue to resist you and fight you. I'm going to allow you to have your way with me. That yieldedness, this idea of I'm going to choose to keep my eyes focused on you and to let you work and direct and undertake in my life through your power, through your strength, all through your grace and by your grace. Now then God can do something. He can do something with a nobody because he's somebody. And as long, as long as you keep thinking you're somebody who can do this, you can add to this, you can contribute to this, you can somehow do your part in this, there's not going to be success. Because God says you have to come to the end of yourself where you see in humility that without you I can do nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who strengthens it? His. Even if you think about the spiritual battle, very often we think of ourselves as, ourselves as warriors for Jesus. Well, in a sense, maybe. But when you think about the battlefield, the equipment that J God has given us primarily is defensive, defensive armor to protect us from the onslaught of the enemy. You see, our strength doesn't come from how fierce warriors we are for Jesus. It comes from the power of God working in and through us. That's why the passage starts with be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. As soon as we start to think this is about us or that we have this attitude that I can, you know, I can resist, I can fight back, I can do this, I can stand against the enemy, you'll fall. Because it's only by His strength, through His provision, through His protection that that could ever be true. As He's the one who fights our battles, He's the one who goes before us. He says, fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. In any event, another rabbit trail. Now, when you think about God's grace being expressed continually through his provision for your ongoing spiritual needs, isn't that cause for thanksgiving? As you think about what he continues to do in your life, isn't that cause for thanksgiving? Doesn't that give you a heart of gratitude? As you think about all God has done, which we talked about in the past, in terms of saving you, but in the, in the sense of His ongoing grace that He's given you, doesn't that give you that heart of gratitude? Well, it sure should. But then we see this last clause by Christ Jesus. It indicates the means for accessing these riches. We've talked about it at length. But God's grace was initially accessed through faith in Christ, and God continues to provide for those who are identified with Jesus Christ. In that sense, I'm in Christ, He's in me. That's how I get a hold of God's ongoing gracious provision in my life. It's because of my identification with Jesus Christ. It's because of what Jesus Christ did for me so that I could become a part of this family of God. And then as a result of that, I'm the beneficiary, I continue to be the beneficiary of God's gracious provision in my life. Now let's look at a little bit more about that. Because he now gets in a little bit more detail, Paul's going to reveal the specifics about God's gracious provision or gifts of God in the lives of these believers. We see verse 5, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance 
and in all knowledge, that you were enriched in everything by him. This word enriched is defined as to cause to become very wealthy in resources. To cause to become very wealthy in resources. What kind of resources are in view here? Spiritual resources. I'm a child of the king. As a child of the king, I have the provision of the king for me. I lack nothing. We'll get to that. We'll dig into that a little deeper in a moment. But he's enriched me in everything. Now, specifically, he starts talking about or uses this phrase, you enriched in everything by him, meaning you're not equipping yourself. When you see in everything, you're seeing he didn't, withheld, he didn't withhold anything. I'm not missing anything. He provided all that was necessary. So just even that word, everything, is a powerful word. And by him, again, I didn't go to the army surplus store and pack up all the things that I needed for my spiritual life, buy all those things, purchase all those things, provide all those things. No, God is the one who did all of that for me. As I simply rested in his care and provision for me, his gracious provision for my every need. So now we have in all utterance and all knowledge. Paul now highlights two specific God-given gifts. In all utterance, the Greek word here is logos. It's the same word that's, that's said about Jesus. And the word logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God, Christ is referred to with the same word, the word. It's most commonly translated with that as word. 75% of the time this word is used, it wouldn't say in all utterance. It would say the word. You were enriched in everything by him through the word and all knowledge. Now, there's a couple of different ways of looking at this gift of God. Paul could be referring to their giftedness for speaking, which if you continue in this book, you'll get to chapter 12, and in chapter 12, Paul will talk about what a spiritually gifted congregation this was. In terms of specific spiritual gifts. So a giftedness for speaking, a giftedness for prophecy, you can read that on your own. So he could be referring to that. You were enriched in everything by him, in the ability to speak, in the ability to then understand. But Paul could also be referring to the gift or the way that they were enriched in everything was by or through the Word, the Word of God. It could be referring to the Christian teaching they received while Paul was there for approximately a year and a half. So Paul stayed with these believers for a year and a half. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Verse 11 tells us it was a year and a half. For a year and a half, they were enriched in everything. God, God even having allowed Paul to be with them and to teach them and to minister to them for that length of time, that was a demonstration of God's gift, a, a demonstration of, sorry, of God's grace, of God's provision for their spiritual needs, for their ongoing spiritual needs. So he could be referring to that. I actually take that view, that he's talking about I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which it started or it was given to you through salvation from the penalty of sin, but it continued to be bestowed on you as you were able to learn about the Word of God and you were able to understand it. Now, I don't need to be dogmatic about it, but here's Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 talking about 
because certainly it's, a, it's the grace of God that would give them the ability to have, you know, to be effective at speaking, to have giftedness for speaking to one another, and to then grow as a result of ongoing, the ongoing benefits of that. But as you think about the Word of God, there's also great grace on display there that God would even give us His Word, and even that they'd have the opportunity to be taught the Word of God by the Apostle Paul. But 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. How often? Always. Same kind of a thing here. Without ceasing is the same. Because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the Word of men, but who is it being communicated by? Men, by the Apostle Paul. But you received it as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So I think there's pretty good evidence here, based on the way Paul uses the language here, that Paul could just as easily and probably, in my opinion, more likely, he's referring to that they were enriched in everything by the Word, the Word of God that they received as it was taught to them by Paul, and now it's effectively working in them. Now we have in all knowledge, refers to the ability to comprehend, learn, discern, or understand. The ability to comprehend, learn, discern, or understand. Naturally, teaching has more value when it is understood by the hearer. They were the gracious beneficiaries of both teaching and understanding. So you were enriched in everything by Him. How? Through the Word and through understanding of that Word. So it doesn't matter, doesn't change the meaning that much, regardless of how you take this. The speaking, either way, the giftedness for speaking, that in and of itself was of no spiritual benefit to them. So even if it's not referring to the word that they received as communicated by Paul to them while he stayed with them for a year and a half, even if that's not what it's referring to, and it's referring to a giftedness for teaching or giftedness for speaking that was a part of the gifts that this congregation had, that giftedness for speaking without any content, any useful spiritual content, wouldn't mean anything. Paul wouldn't be saying that was a demonstration of God's ongoing grace in your life if the speaking or the teaching hadn't related to the Word of God. Either way, it comes back to the teaching about Christ. Lifting up and exhorting these believers in this congregation with the truths of God's Word. And so you're really splitting hairs or talking about the same thing to some extent there. Now we move to verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was, was confirmed in you. So I thank God, always concerning the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So the testimony of Christ, it refers to the proclamation about Christ or any proclamation about Christ. Confirmed in you indicates that it was believed, accepted, or established by them or in them. So the testimony or the proclamation of Christ was a part of this teaching or speaking the word and all understanding of that word. It was as a result of the teaching about who Christ was, also an explanation of what Christ had taught. So the apostles' doctrine, as it had been revealed to them through personal interactions with Christ, 
Then you had ongoing revelation taking place. And obviously you had the Old Testament scriptures that would comprise the word of God at that time. And so the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. God provided for your spiritual needs. He enriched you as you went through the process of growing and maturing in your faith, meaning it's being confirmed in you. It was confirmed in you through additional teaching, through additional gracious provision of God for your spiritual growth. And as you grew, then that strengthened you in your faith. The idea is that witnessing God's ongoing care in your life, seeing Him provide for your spiritual needs, it should strengthen your faith. In that sense, sense, their faith was established, not meaning that they continued to get saved in a justification or a first tense way over and over again, but that their moment in time faith, it grew stronger as they learned more about God, as they learned more about God's truth, as they were exposed to the teaching of God's word and an understanding of that teaching, then their faith was confirmed, their faith grew. They, they had more, they were more established in their faith is I guess the be- best way of saying that. So then you get to verse 7, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was the outcome of God graciously enriching them in everything, then becoming established in the faith? What was the outcome of that? So that you come short in no gift. In most translations, I would say almost all of them, except for this one, say you are not lacking any spiritual gift. It's because of the, as you grew in your faith, as you were exposed to more truth, you were blessed in, by God's gracious ongoing provision of actual spiritual gifts that were unique to you. They, not everyone had the same gifts. You can, again, read about that in chapter 12. Everyone had different gifts because everybody's a different part of the body, and when they come together, the body is stronger. And so you lacked nothing. You had everything that you needed. You weren't lacking anything that was necessary for Christian growth. Paul summarizes and repeats the idea that God graciously provided everything that was necessary for these believers' spiritual growth and success. The idea is now you have every spiritual gift you need as you wait for Christ's return. And as I was thinking about how God had undertaken to provide for their ongoing spiritual needs, that it was a demonstration of God's grace in their life that he would enrich them in everything. He wouldn't just save them, but he would enrich them. He would cause them to grow spiritually that Paul could say, I thank God always that you were for God's grace that was bestowed upon you, that you were enriched in everything, that you were allowed to then grow in your faith. But as you think about how God provided for them, the truth is that God does this for every believer. He's doing that for you too. God says that every believer has everything they need to live the life that God intended for them to live, a life that is filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with contentment, filled with purpose, a life that is described as an abundant life, a a life that's overflowing. He's done that for you too. A couple of passages that I wanted to share with you is Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Not just some blessings, every spiritual blessing. Let's get a little bit more page turning. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to see you another, show you another example of what Paul is talking about here of the ongoing grace of God 
in the sense that God continues to enrich those who are his children by providing for their spiritual needs. I know this is one of Pastor Weefel's favorite passages, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4. I have it up here if you don't have a Bible with you, but the rest of us, it's nice to look at it in our own Bibles. You are not lacking any spiritual gift. That's the takeaway, friends. You are not lacking. It's because of God's grace that he's provided everything that you need. So here we have Peter. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you have God's peace? You have to know something about him. You have to get come to know him. As his divine power, whose power is it? It's not, it's not your power. It's God's power working in you. Has been given to us as his divine power has given to us all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He didn't hold back. He enriched you in everything through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. What a nice way of saying the same thing Paul is saying in Ephesians when he says every spiritual blessing. Exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these, what was the purpose in giving those things to you? What is the purpose? Why, did, why has God enriched you in everything? That through these you may be, present tense, partakers of the divine nature. Not, not at some future time, Right now, in time, that through the power of God's Spirit working in you, you could experience life the way that God wanted or planned for you too, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What a fascinating passage. And as I read that, I, I, I wrote down, what's your excuse? You were enriched in everything. You are, la- you are not lacking any spiritual gift. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You've been given exceedingly great and precious promises. You've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. What's your excuse for not living for the Lord? For not letting Him have His way in you? For not growing in your faith? This isn't about you doing something, you know, feeling bad, feeling guilty, As you sit there and say, yeah, I'm just pissing away my life. I'm just watching time go by. I'm just waiting for the final hammer to drop. I'm just just holding on, waiting for that curtain call. That's the perspective, that's the attitude, that's the reality so many people fall into, myself included. Is there any excuse, is there any reason for that though? Well, it's because you get too focused on this world, on yourself, on your circumstances, on other people, and you get your eyes off of the Savior. When I'm looking at the Savior, when I'm focused on Him, His Spirit is free to work inside of me with, to make use of all of the provision that God has already made for me through His grace so that I can live the kind of life that would bring me joy but would bring Him glory. Anything else is a poor substitute. It's a foolish trade. 
to trade an abundant life for, for this. That's the best I can say about this life, for this. As I said at a funeral service recently, if you believe that there is no such thing as eternity, that this is all there is to live for, give me a break. What we experience, the trials and the hardships and the difficulties of this life, that's all there is and then we rot in the ground? And you're telling me that you're filled with joy? You're filled with hope? You're filled with purpose? I think not. See, that hope can only come from a relationship, a right relationship with Him and seeing that I do have a purpose. He does have a plan for me. And you look at this and you think about, you see how it says, you're not lacking any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. As Paul again said here in his prayer this morning, come quick. Are you eager? Are you eagerly awaiting the return of Christ? We should be. We have a bright future to look forward to. Now verse 8 says, again, this is a continuation of the reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you just keep reading there. Waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to describe him. So this phrase describes the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So of course, who will confirm you to the end refers back to our Lord Jesus Christ. To confirm refers to establishing or strengthening. So, the Lord Jesus Christ will establish and strengthen you to the end. That's what Paul is giving thanks for, is God's ongoing gracious provision in the lives of these believers. And he's going to continue to do that, establish and strengthen you to the end. God will continue by his grace to provide all that is needed until he returns. Now, you see that. Again, I hope you're reminded, I hope it's jumping off the page at you, but you don't confirm anything. Jesus Christ will also confirm you to the end. The focus is on God's work, not yours. And sometimes you get to that next phrase, that you may be blameless. How can someone who continues to sin be presented as blameless, or the word actually means unaccusable, meaning you're not subject to being accused. How could somebody who continues to sin, and every believer continues to sin, how could that person be presented blameless? This is where assurance is robbed by those who teach that your life has to look a certain way to confirm that you were authentically or sincerely or genuinely saved to begin with. Because if you were to have to eradicate sin from your life to prove that, or, or to have a sinless life, or to not have any patterns of sin in your life, to prove that you were saved, you would be hopeless in terms of assurance because you continue to sin. And as you see that, you would say, well, I'm not blameless. How am I going to stand if my part of this was to preserve or maintain what God started in me? If it was, if it was up to me to finish off or prove out the authenticity of the salvation that God started, I'm not doing a very good job. Now, now, that's only for people who are being honest. But the person who's being honest is saying, I'm not getting this right as often as God wants in my life because I'm not trusting Him enough. 
But how could you be presented blameless? And the answer is because Jesus Christ is effectively sitting there saying, I died for that sin and 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 that sin. Satan can't bring an accusation against you because Christ is presenting you blameless, having said, I already paid for that sin. That's how he's able to present you blameless. But there's also a sense there that as I trust him and as I am being directed by him, that I'll actually have a life that would be blameless. Not, not completely blameless, but that as he's undertaking and directing my life, this life could be one that would bring God glory, that he could say, well done to that. So I'm blameless positionally because Christ already died for that sins. He can, through his strength, through his spirit, work in my life so that my life could be godly. It could be holy. It could be set apart. It could bring him glory. Why would you, who have been saved from bondage to sin, continue in it any longer? The spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom from the law of sin and death. We don't have to just throw our hands in the air and say, oh, poor me, I can't get it right. You can't get it right, but He working in you can make you right. You're not right. You're not okay. But He's perfect. He's, you're complete in Him. He can make you something that you're not. He can transform you into the image of His Son. Will you let Him? Will you allow Him to work in and through you? You see, that's why Paul can say this with absolute confidence and assurance, is he knows this isn't about me. This is about Him. Now we have our last verse here, which isn't really a part of the prayer so much as it is a separate kind of doxology or prayer itself. He just says, he just makes a statement here. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now it ties in perfectly to this presenting you blameless, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea that Christ is the one who's going to confirm you to the end. You're not going to confirm yourself to the end. Now, what is that based on? That's based on God's faithfulness, and that's why Paul thinks to say it as a statement here. God is faithful. Because he's talking about God having given you every spiritual gift, God confirming you to the end, God having enriched you in everything. Now, what does that all come back to? It comes back to God is the one who's faithful. So Paul ends by praising God. This confirms the exclusive focus on the work of Christ at a point in time in the ongoing of work of Christ in these believers' life as a product of His grace in the, in the present. The believer is permanently identified with Christ and placed in Christ. So when you see that phrase, you were called into the fellowship of His Son. You were placed in Christ. You're identified with Christ. And so in that sense, God's faithfulness is going to confirm you to the end. And that should be encouraging, comforting, and assuring, and assuring to remember that God is always faithful. Though we are faithless, yet He remains faithful still. He cannot deny Himself, and he's, His Spirit is living inside of you. You were sealed by His Spirit. That's what can give you assurance of your salvation. God can never deny Himself. So are you thankful for God's grace? 
That's what Paul's prayer was. I'm so thankful for God's grace in your life. It was given to you by Christ Jesus in the sense that you were enriched and continue to be enriched in everything by Him. You were not lacking. That should have caused you to grow in your faith. It should have established your faith. It should have given you more confidence in your faith. You're not lacking any spiritual gift. God is the one who is doing all this. He's the one who's going to confirm you to the end because God is faithful. That give you an attitude of gratitude, a heart of gratitude this morning? I hope it does. It should be overwhelming to consider all God has graciously done for you. You should be bursting with gratitude. You should be eager to say thank you to Him. And as you're a part of a body of other believers, it should cause you to even look at God's provision in the lives of your fellow believers and, th- and, and have this posture that Paul has where you say, I thank my God for the grace of God which was given to you. So you could say that to one another. May that be true of each and every one of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you that you're such a great God, such a gracious God, that you saw fit to not only provide a way for us to be rescued from the penalty of our sin, but you saw fit to provide the means and the blessings necessary, the gifts necessary for us to experience a life of godliness here in time, all by your grace, all because of your faithfulness, and all something that's given to us freely if we would just get our eyes off of ourselves and keep our eyes on you. Thank you for these promises.